1: Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Jorge Valdez. As a young man in his 20s with an insatiable thirst for money and power, Dr. Valdez was a founding member of a group that became known as Colombia's Medellin Drug Cartel. And he has a very interesting story how he kind of pivoted and changed his life around and some of the key learnings he took from that. So thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you, Roman, for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. You know, it's, uh, it's very interesting because one of the things that's unique about my story is that we think in this world that bad things only happen to bad kids, you know, and, uh, and then combined with the fact that you believe that once you're down or once you've done something horrific in life, that's it. That's going to define you for the rest of your life. And uh, I'm the perfect example that both of them don't necessarily have to be taught. You know, I came from Cuba, an immigrant, you know, like yourself. You know how it is, the immigrant experience. I came early in the 60s in Miami where it was pretty rough growing up. And, uh, you know, my parents were very wealthy in Cuba, came to the United States with nothing because the clothes on our back escaping communism. And my mother was very, very religious. You know, she wanted her children to grow up in a country where they could worship God. My father, typical Catholic, you know, he'd take us to church and he'd say he would pray, but never never saw it or very distant. Uh, back the old, I try to explain to my kids back in the 50s, you know, I don't think I ever, by the time I was nine, I ever said five words to my father. But yeah, I know he loved me, but at that time where we uh, kids are meant to be seen and not to be heard. So we grew up more, but what happened is at the airport, as we're about to leave, I was 10, my sister was, my brother was nine and my sister was five. They come and they say that my mother can come. And my mother was the center of our home. That was, you know, everything that we did was around my mom. And uh, my dad, of course, he didn't want to leave. He didn't think that Castro was going to have any impact on his life. You know, very wealthy man, he was 40, didn't speak the language. So he's like, I'm not going. And I remember my mother coming and grabbing my hand and saying, son, take your brother and sister to Miami. I'll see you one day. Well my world just shattered. I mean, literally. Uh, it was, I uh, had no idea what was going on. First of all, I had no idea why we we're leaving Cuba. They didn't tell us anything. And then all of a sudden, my mother was the center of our house. Is not leaving. My father, did not want to come. And I'm walking towards that tarmac in a daze. And I remember telling myself, I create a mindset. And I created this belief that, you know, my mother's crazy. If there's ever going to be a God, I'm going to make him. It's going to be who I make him to be. We came to Miami. Eleven was living in a one-bedroom apartment. You know, uh, we had to write down what time we had to pee because everyone had to go to school or work. But I grew up with, my father did come with us, and I grew up with tremendous morals and uh, very hardworking. I remember we had no food, literally, uh, to drink. Uh, in the morning, all we would get is two raw eggs and this powdered Vietnam milk that never mixed. We didn't have lunch. All we did is add that some milk you can drink milk till this day with the two eggs till nighttime, time and uh, telling my father my, hey dad I found out a friend of mine came from Cuba six months before us he takes lunch and my father well, he didn't say much he said yes and I'm like well he said he gets food stamps and my dad just nods his head and he says I said you know about food stamps he said yes and I said well why don't we get food stamps and he's like because that's for poor people and I'm like damn We haven't even gotten to poor yet, man. We're like so underneath the ground that we haven't surfaced for poverty. And he said, son, you know, poor stands for people that really need it. But anyone that takes help from the government takes poor all their life. And then I never forget till today. And that was 54 years ago. He put his finger on my chest. I was 70 pounds soaking wet. He said, you get up early in the morning and you figure out how you're going to help feed your family. And that's all I did. Uh, I worked since I was 10 years old. At the age of 17, I was an honor student in school, never did drugs, never did all the alcohol I drank in my life before I was 21 fit in a teacup. Uh, never did anything. I worked full-time, for the, I was the youngest employee at the age of 17 for the Federal Reserve Bank and uh, went to Miami full-time. And uh, that's all I did for four years. I worked and I studied, worked and studied all day long. Had no social life. At the age of 20, my accounting professor says to me, he had moved from uh, Michigan, then speaks Spanish. He said, George, if you do want Spanish clients, I'll give you a secretary of office, uh, all the things to start your own practice. And that was my dream, because I was set. I, I had a goal. I was laser focused. I was I was going go to uh, graduate at the age of 20, go to law school, get out of law school by the age of 23, and I'm going to be a millionaire by the age of 30. That's all that mattered to me. See, I bought into this Believe of the American dream, the American dream that we think today that is really not real. The one that if you have a lot of money, you have a lot of cars, mansion and women, you're going to be happy. You'll be somebody. And that's what I wanted to do all my life. So I worked really, really hard. And then I remember the first thing he gave me was just a little grocery store. I mean, uh, in, in Little Havana. And I went there the first Monday and this is 1976. I'm 20 years old and I see this bag with $100,000, and I'm like, my God, I didn't even know that much money existed in the world. I didn't say nothing, I went about doing my books, but I'm like, you know, it's an accountant, well, it doesn't make sense, how can this little shop produce so much? Next week I come, 75,000. The week, the third week come, and I see another 100,000, I'm, I had enough. I'm like, I gotta find out what's going on. I called the owner and I said, can you explain to me you know, what is happening? Because let me explain something real basic about accounting. If you buy that can of soup there that I've seen every day that I've come here, it's still dusty, you never sold it. But if you buy that can of soup for a dollar and you sell it for $3, that means a dollar profit. In the last week, I recorded over $300,000. That must've meant you must've bought over a hundred thousand. But all I've seen is about $1,400 worth of purchases. And I mean, literally, they just laughed in my face and they're like, George, we're drug dealers. Now, imagine this 20-year-old kid, a perfect nerd, worked for the federal government, never did nothing wrong with I didn't have a traffic ticket, finding out that he's working for drug dealers. Now, we also got to go back to the 70s, right? When, you know, uh, cocaine was not what it is today. It, it was a society, a status quota. You know, if you had a party, you had a lot of cocaine, you were, it was a good party and now you were dead broke. I mean, a kilo of cocaine was 75,000. You can buy a gorgeous home in Miami for 25,000. So immediately I was like in shock, but it took me about two minutes. And that's what happens to us in life, how we are able to process things to justify our ends. I said to myself, well, as long as I'm not breaking the law, I'm an accountant, there was no money laundering law. I said, you know, fine, let them do whatever they can. So they came to me and they said, look, can you open, you work for the federal government, do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? And well, I knew how because of an audit that we had at the Federal Reserve Bank. And I said, sure. And they said, well, how much? I had heard that it was between 500 and $700 to open an account. But I didn't want to get involved with none of this. I just want to come every Monday, do my accounting, make a thousand dollars, which was a fortune, you know? Back in '76. I was making a big salary at the Federal Reserve Bank, and I made three fifty dollars an hour. Minimum wage was 85 cents. And uh, I said, $10,000. They looked at me and said, when can you open three? Literally, my world just changed drastically. All of a sudden, it's like, look, I'm gonna figure out how to do this thing. And I did. And I started opening foreign bank accounts for them. No money in law, no money laundering law. So I thought, you know, no problem with that. So I opened the sworn bank accounts with them. And before you know it, within the first six months, I was handling about $50 million a month. Anyway, they began to ask me to handle operations in the United States. They're like, you're a clean cut kid. You, you, you're brilliant. You have no, no one following you. Uh, no one would even know anything. You work for the government. And I didn't want to do any of that. I want to get involved. I'm fine. I'm making now twenty thousand dollars a month. sometime. so I thought I was the richest man in the world. But they were harassing me. During this time, we had bought the ship and we had it in California. We we're remodeling it. And the guy that I had hired to do the refrigeration, uh, he and I became very good friends because I was living out there, and he was a young guy like me and loved baseball. And I, I was a big baseball player when I was young. So we started to get real close, and we spent a lot of time together. And then all of a sudden, he started, hey, I know that boat is going to be for cocaine. I'm like, dude, you've got to be mine. First of all, I'm going to buy a ship in my name to smuggle cocaine. He kept harassing me. Finally, Roman, when I just couldn't take it anymore, I'm like, okay, I, gotta, I know how to get rid of both sides. I'm going to find out what cocaine costs, and I'm going to make this buyer so-called wanting, wanting to be a buyer an offer that was so stupid. He's going to tell me, just, that's fine. We can't afford that. And I'm like, you know, what, I'll do that. I'll just go ahead and tell this Colombian. I said, you know what? I'll handle operations for you, but you make me equal partner. And uh, I ain't got no money to put up. So you gotta put it up for me. And I'm like, I was convinced that if the buyer deal did not work out, this was definitely gonna work out because they're gonna look at this 20 year old kid with braces and they're gonna kick my butt all the way up from Columbia back to the States. So I found out that cocaine was about 35,000 in Miami at that time. And I went up to him and I'm like, look, you're right. Now, you know, we're drug dealers, but we only handle the best. And it's $70,000 $70, a kilo. He said, oh, man, that's high. I said, yeah, I know it's high, but, you know, it's 100% pure. And that's, well, What can I tell you? He said, well, let me talk to my partner. I'm like, I got to of this guy. A week when I had to go to uh, uh, Columbia to give him a report of how the refurbishing of the ship was coming, I went up to Manuel and he's like, of course, he, immediately he would bring this up. And when he did, I said, look, I've really been thinking about it. I'll handle all your operations in the United States, make me equal partners, and you gotta put up my money money to buy the cocaine. At that time, Colombia did not produce any cocaine. They were buying it from Bolivia and Peru. And later on, they started processing it in Colombia, but they didn't. So a a kilo of cocaine at that time was 18 to 20,000. So they're bringing in uh, 100 kilos to begin with, So when you you look at that and you're like you know that's two million dollars among five people is four hundred thousand dollars i mean where the heck am i going to get that amount of money ever in my life so he said all right well let me think about it and i'm like done i went to my hotel next morning when they were picking me up the chauffeur said uh manuel wants to talk to you so i said okay we forgot to go over something so i went back to the office and there was all his three other partners and Literally, I thought I was gonna pee myself. I'm like, man, these people got so insulted, they're just gonna kill me, you know? They were stoic, no smile, no nothing. And they looked at me and they're like, fine. We'll make you equal partners. You handle all operations. Now, I'm about to turn 21 years old. I've never seen drugs in my life. I don't know what cocaine looks like. I don't know if it looks like sand. What does it look like? How do you bring it in? Who the hell do you sell it to? How do you take it to the seller? What do you do with the money? I mean, literally, I thought I was going to have a C-shirt. And uh, when I went to Colombia, of course, Mel said, listen, fine, we'll start out with 10 kilos. And I'm like, man, never in my wildest dream did I ever plan for this to happen to my life. Within six months, I was handling all operations for that group that became known as the Medellin drug cartel. See, there was no Medellin drug cartel. Uh, i would never said this before. A lot of people haven't. It was a name that the Americans gave different groups in the 80s like Pablo Escobar, uh, to join them together, because if you can put everyone as one common enemy, then it's easier to vilify them. So, but the group, Manuel Garcia, who was started, three-part of myself, we were the group that became known as the Medellin drug cartel. And we were doing importing between 500 to 1,000 kilos in 1977. I was making between a million and three million million a month. And I lived a life that ain't very few human beings ever dreamed of living. I had mansions all over the world. I had private jets, yachts. I went out with the most beautiful women in America. I had anything and anybody that I wanted. But I couldn't understand why suddenly I really started to feel miserable. And I just couldn't understand why my life had no meaning, why I was void and empty. In 1979, we decided that we were gonna work, I, I got approached by the government of Bolivia, and they wanted to sell me directly and not have to go to Colombia. And when I presented the idea to Manuel, uh, he's like, no, those people are savages, you're making so much money, why would you ever want? And I'm like, look, we can buy for 10 versus 20, we can make $7 million a month versus one to three per partner, and he's like, don't get greedy, this is fine, but you know what? At the end, of, at that time, I had started to begin to believe I was God, and I didn't care nothing. It was a challenge. So I arranged to uh, make that deal, and uh, we went to Bolivia. As a matter of fact, the guy that you see, if you ever saw him with Scarface, the guy that comes to kill Tony Montana and Roberto Suarez, that was my partner in Bolivia. So I got on the airplane, which I had never gone on before. We flew to Colombia, and I had a meeting in Nicaragua with General Somoza. And I didn't have enough time to get there from a jungle in Colombia. So I got on the airplane and my godfather had a seizure. He's like, you had all the money for us. You're the key to this whole thing. And I'm like, don't worry about it. Nothing's gonna happen to me. Well, we crash landed over the jungles of Panama. I was arrested Uh, immediately when they gave out my name. The DEA came, we were arrested. Uh, The attorney general came and I looked at him like, look, don't waste my time or your time how much money to buy the cocaine back and how much money to leave uh, Panama. And he's like, well, the cocaine, Noriega already sold it. And to leave Panama is gonna be 250,000. I said, I'll give you a number, you call it with this code and you have your money here the next day. And he did. The lady comes to see me and like, all right, it's all done. Uh, I'm gonna arrange for you to go to Costa Rica, which is where we wanted to go. We had paid a million dollars to get the president of Costa Rica elected. And I, he said, they're gonna rough you up in the city of Panama a little bit. Take to your story and uh, and don't worry about it. You'll, you'll go home that afternoon. So we went there and they lined us up. It was me, the uh, my partner who was in charge of uh, transportation and the two pilots that worked for him. Lined us up, they sat us down in a table in a room about, I don't know, about seven feet, eight feet wide by 14, 15 feet long. And they brought this kid, butt naked, couldn't have been no more than 18 years old, maybe a 100 pounds, and they handcuffed to his feet and his uh, hands, and they took him in the floor, and they stuck a uh, broomstick up his rectum, and blood splattered all over the place. When that happened, the pilot said, hey, let me tell you this. George Rodgers is the biggest drug dealer in the world. He's lying to you. He doesn't know nothing about the cocaine in the plane. And number two, he just bribed at the attorney general. And that's what I knew, Roman all hell was gonna come loose. So they ended up taking us to a dungeon and they tortured us for the next 28 days, day and night, where I bled every time that I could piss for five years. The thing that I'm most interested about now is, is talking about mindset is, I had a mindset at that time. And my mindset was that I'd rather die than cooperate with the government, than testify against people, even most slightly the people that I was protecting would testify against me. But like I told my kids, listen, you walk down the street, they can say anything about your father, loud, obnoxious, whatever. One thing they cannot say is that your father is not a man. And uh, eventually I threatened the because really what I wanted them to do is kill me. Because what I was afraid of was that I was gonna lose my mind in this dungeon. And uh, I told Lieutenant to Noriega that if he did not kill me, I was gonna kill his family, I was gonna kill him. And two days later he came and he's like, actually he came smiling, I thought he was gonna come shooting. And he was like, why are you threatening me? I didn't rat you out. It was your own pilot. And you made a mistake, you paid the wrong guy. And I'm like, well, how much? He said $250. I'm like, dude, (laughs) $250,000 for four the other day, now it's $250,000 for two? Fine. Same exercise. And uh, two days later, he did take us to the airport. And as we're waiting for the flight for Costa Rica, uh, about 20 airport agents came and dragged us like a sack of potato and threw us in an airplane to Miami. When I got to Miami, I was charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America. Given the highest bond in ever, the government wanted five million. I was given two million. Unheard of. No one has ever been given a hundred thousand ever in America. And I was sentenced to 15 years. I had just turned 23 years old. And I tell people, you think the prison changes? Prison doesn't change you. I mean, I had a first time went to prison. I had a blast. People that were well, there worked for me," or, you know, I. I had a lover in there, a woman. I need to clarify that because in prison, that doesn't necessarily equal the opposite gender. But uh, I lived a life and I got out and I was just the same way. I was bitter and angry, you know, but but things started to really ramp up. I remember my mother, you know, I, I tell people, as I work with youth and parents, I said, look, my mother is the best example of tough love. When my mother found out I was a drug dealer, she never stopped telling me that I had destroyed them, that that I destroyed their life, that everything they worked for to give us an education, that I was killing her and and my dad, and that what I was doing didn't please God. But in the same breath moment, she would then say, son, what do you want to eat today? You want black beans? All right, what do you want to eat? So she did waver and told me what was wrong, but did stop being my mother. And that's very, very important because we think tough love is throw their ass out of the streets. See, I knew how to come north because my parents gave me a true north. So when I went all over the world, all over the place crazy, I knew where to come back. And things began to happen and eventually what ended up happening was that one day my little girl was, uh, I was partying with some Hollywood celebrities and in the middle of the night my ex-wife dropped my daughter off and in the middle of the night she was three years old, started knocking on the door and she was like, daddy, it's Crystal. And it was the first time in my life that I started to shiver and I started to feel filthy and disgusting. He was the only thing in my life that was sacred and she wanted to reach out to her dad and I couldn't because if I did, uh, I would contaminate her. So I went in the shower, tried to scrub the shower, I chased everyone out the window of my room. An hour later when I thought that she had gone to bed, in that day, it was 1987, I'll never forget, it. it was April of 87, I made a decision. My life would change. As of today, my life is changing. And uh, I remember I called uh, the head of the cartel. I said, look, I'm done. I called my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm finished. She knew exactly what I meant. And she's like, God answered my prayer, talking to my father. I'm like, there's nothing about God here. I was, I was a diehard atheist. Uh, this has to do with crystal, not God. And uh, then I hired this guy to come teach me karate because honestly, I thought that I was going to die within the next two months. You know, we didn't have a very good retirement program in the cartel. So I'm like, one well, thing that they, they didn't do very well with was with unknown. So I know in the in the back of their mind they were wondering, like, why is George quitting? He's making a million, two million dollars a month, three million dollars a month, he's doing nothing now. All he does is give orders. There's no investigation. There's never been a white type of him. Why is he quitting? When you can't answer that question, then their best answer is take him out. You know, and I, and I, and I just, I was convinced of that. So, but I moved to my ranch. I moved away from Miami, which, which I thought the sun would rise and fall in Miami. And I moved to my ranch and uh, I got to teach me karate. So excited. I'm like, man, I picked the right guy. I mean, this, I picked the greatest guy. And he turns around and he has a Bible in his hand. And I'm like, dude, number one, I don't believe in the book. I believe what that book says. And number two, I'm paying you a lot of money to come teach me karate. So tomorrow you leave that sword home and bring the real sword. And it was the first man in so many years that I got up within six inches of my face and said, son, what I got to give you, you got no money to pay. And I said to him, I said to myself, Roman, well, I reached behind my belt, I didn't have my gun with me. Uh, and I'm like, man, this is the degree Black Belt. He's gonna to begin to introduce Jesus into me. and I'm gonna pay for it. So I said, dude, here's the deal. Well, it's your time, you know? whenever you uh, after the two hours of karate lesson when the steam room is heating up do whatever you want and people always ask me well what did he say that would change your life I said really absolutely nothing and this was really important about my story I said because here's a guy that I look back never invited me to church never told me to convert never told me that I had to be like him all he did is show me a guy that I thought lived in a very little crappy world right he lived in a regular thousand square foot house I lived in a 20,000 foot mansion. Uh, I live in a 15, $20 million ranch. He had an old beat up car. I had a million dollar worth of cars. You know, he was married to the same woman for 25 years and I'm going out with supermodels and I can't stand them. And I just couldn't couldn't believe it. I just couldn't stand how can someone be happy with so little in life. And uh, he witnessed to me for three years and did a waiver one time. And I was like, I wanted to catch him so bad. I wanted to make believe he was a fall. This is what I tell people. You know, nobody has a problem with Jesus. People just have a problem with Christians. And in prison, it was for me, it was like, okay, so who's the Christian here? You Baptist said that the Pentecostals are dead because they're going to hell because they can't. Pentecostals said, you guys are already dead because you don't believe in nothing. And the only thing you guys can agree is that Catholics are the whole of the apocalypse. So I don't want to be like you guys, you know, I'm honest. I give my life for my friend, and I fear nothing. And you guys fear everything. And when people say, you know, what is your message today? one One of the missions for me is, you know, I don't try to convert anyone. I'm not an evangelist or anything like that. That's none of my business. And I don't care if a person is Jewish, Muslim, you know, gay, not gay, trans, whatever they are. I said, all I do is share my story. How I fell in love with nothing but a Jewish carpenter It changed my life and his love changed my life that's my whole story in a nutshell so I went back to uh, you know three three months later after about uh, well, three years later I had been already four years since I left the cartel one day I was arrested and I had no idea I was at a horse show I was already, I've been legitimate for four and a half years and I had no clue what was going on and then I found out that I had an indictment in Alabama where I'd never been to my entire life. And I was arrested in St. Louis. And uh, so when they took me there, my attorney was waiting for me. and like, don't worry about it. Uh, you're gonna get out of here. They have no case against you. They only have one witness. And he died last night, the one pilot. He said, well, he was a government witness. He was smuggling cocaine in a DEA airplane and killed himself in the fog. And I looked at him, Roman, and I'm like, You know what, Alan? I just can't go on the way that I'm going. I just got to come clean. I got to change my life. And this is my only chance in life. I can't keep fighting these people all my life. I can't lie all my life. I just got to come clean. I got to come clean with my kids, my parents. I got to come clean with the world. And, you know, take whatever consequences come. He said, well, if you do, you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. And I'm like, it is what it is. So I went in front of the U.S. attorney and they said, look, lots of money, little time, little money, lots of time. I said, I said, do you know how much money I got? And uh, she said, no, but I know who does. And she got up, opened the door and here comes these four agents. They knew how much toilet paper I spent. They had spent it with the DEA, FBI, Customs and IRS. And they had spent years following me, uh, tracking all of my expenses. And uh, at the end of the day, they wanted everything I had. And I just couldn't care less, man. I mean, the, the anguish that I was living every day of my life, if all you live for in life is that when you reach this pinnacle, this mountaintop, and there's your identity, there's your joy, and it's not there, then I live in turmoil. And some of the people, very high net worth people that I coach, and there's the same way. They have everything. The world applauds them. The world thinks that they're not suffering, but we're all struggling, man. Every single one of us is going through something in life. And now during this period, even worse yet, there's people out there that are going hungry. There's mothers trying to figure out, listen, if I could work, I can't even leave the house because I got two little kids, you know? So how do I feed my family? You know, people. some people say, uh, take care of your health. You know, the health is more important than the economy. Well, for no problem? Oh, big quarantine, 30 days. Man, I spent 10 years quarantined in you know, a three by eight without a woman, <laughs> without Netflix, so I couldn't care less. No one's in my house, my refrigerator is full. But for some people, the economy is their life. Some people are not trying to figure out when they're gonna get out, to go to beauty salon. They just wanna eat. And that's what we gotta look at this world. We, we're living in fear, and, and nobody's telling anybody anything because we only tell each other, if I meet you, I'm gonna let you meet the George Valdez, I want you to meet. If I meet someone else, I'll let him meet a Dr. Valdez, I want him to meet. We go through a life like that, and nobody's transparent. You're not gonna share that with me, why? Because if you do, we fear that we will be judged, and then we fear that once we're judged, we're gonna be condemned. So we live in this plastic false world, we do this with our kids, we do this with our spouses, we do this with our friends, and nobody finds healing. And, uh, and we live in this desperation. Well, in prison, I said, I have two things I can do. I can do the time, or I can let the time do me. Prisoners say, sleep 12 hours, and you will sleep half of your sentence away. So I'm like, no, I'm going to make believe I'm a monk. I'm in a monastery, and I want to learn about this God. I want to learn about theology. I want to be the best theologian in the world. And I got another bachelors and then I started my master. When I got out, I finished my PhD from Loyola University in Chicago. I was one of five Hispanics in the whole country with a PhD versus 5,000 angles, recruited by every major university. And then my father died. And when my father died, I was very convicted. Now he had no money to ever give me. So what did he do though? He gave me his presence. And I had three children from a prior marriage that lived in Georgia. I was living in Chicago. And I just told my wife, we're moving. And so we moved to, uh, to Georgia to be a full-time dad to my kids. Now, how am I gonna work? What am I gonna do? Well, I don't care. I can clean toilets. It doesn't matter I have a PhD in my office. All that matters, is I gotta feed my family. And we started a company in the basement of our house, a cleaning company. In 10 years, I built it into a multi-million dollar international and national company. Then one day I said, uh, if a man cannot define when enough is enough, only greed will drive them. And uh, I quit. Moved to Mexico so my kids can learn a different experience, learn a different worldview. And uh, then I've dedicated the rest of my life to try to make a difference in the world. I believe I can make, I can change the world. I believe any of us can change the world. You're changing the world through your podcast and what you do. Whether you give, if you give hope to one person, if you make one person's life better, you know, you've changed the world, right? We don't think this monumental thing, or we ask ourselves, tell ourselves, well, who am I? I'm just a little guy. Well, Mother Teresa was a nobody, none in a nowhere land and changed the world. You know, the, the biggest movements in life have been done by one person who could believe that, you know, they could do extraordinary things. So I write books, you know, I coach uh, people. Now, because of this virus, I decided that I was going to write this, what I call the narco mindset journal. You know, people say, why don't you have any fear? I said, well, what is there to fear? I said, I, I fallen off an airplane at 3,000 feet and I live. I've been shut up 28 times and I live, you know, I spent 10 years in prison. I lived, I was tortured and I lived. A virus is going to take me? Well, that'd be a hell of a joke. So at the end of the day, fear is fear itself. So I want to help people to change their mind because it's all about mindset, right? It's all about how do we look at the world, you know, through what lenses? When people say, well, uh, I, I see this, I see that. Well, how, how do you see things different? I said, because it's like this, if you take a cowboy and you take a preacher and you take An artist, they're all looking at the same thing, coming up with three different things, right? So I look at the world through what I call my narco mindset, right? The mindset that I can overcome anything. I can become anything. My path, yeah, has consequences, rightfully so, deservedly so, but they don't define me. My failures don't define me. I don't look at things as a failure. To me, they're all learning lessons, right? How did I know if I would've made another decision, it would've been better? I don't know that. All I know is what I have now. So I look at, and and at the end of the day, to me, what's important is when the pages of history are written, will history remember my name? And I just believe that history only remembers our name, but the lives that we impact, the lives for others that we impact. It doesn't remember us by these great buildings or making millions and millions. You know, I was making more money any human being can ever imagine. You know, think about 21 years old, you're making a million, $3 million a month in 1976. And uh, I don't make nothing now. I, I live a very life, thank God. But, but it doesn't matter because to me, the wealthiest is the person that has the least, that needs the least, not the one that has the most. If you see some of the high net worth people, and, and I've also coached very high profile athletes, and you hear the stories inside, man, these people, the world applauds them. They all want to be them. They're miserable. They have family problems. And they have, they're disconnected from their children. They work so hard because they don't want to come home. Well, we don't have to remain like that. You know, we don't have to allow our circumstances to define us forever. We have the power to change. That was my story in a nutshell.
1: There's a lot to unwrap there, and I think starting off, I think when everybody's younger, at least for myself, in my 20s, motivator there was kind of money, title, position, material things. I think it's a, a developing mind. Oftentimes you get kind of lured by that. And I think a lot of people in your situation would have obviously kind of took advantage of the, the that opportunity and ran with it. And obviously you kind of justified it that, you know, you weren't money laundering, you were just handling their books to begin with. And then it kind of spiraled out of control and i think it's important you had your kind of guiding light to get you out of that and then the whole you know you finding god i think made a good point about all these religions and i think personally you know religion doesn't say you know having a personal relationship with jesus christ at least for me so there's all these religion things that kind of push people away from god but having a personal relationship with Him, obviously is the most important thing and then doing so in terms of using your time, you were incarcerated. And instead of just kind of letting that time compound and move on, you basically took advantage of the situation, did something with it, found an education, and redefined your life that way. And I think it's very important in terms of having a platform and then leaving a legacy because, as you said, physical and material things are great. You know, those accolades come with success. But at the end of the day, how many things can you actually have? without actually impacting others. I think us being in people's memories and impacting their lives and making their lives better is what kind of carries us on after we're gone as well.
0: No, and you know, you said something interesting, and and I'll give you an example. Here's the amazing thing. This is what I shared with people. I said, you know, I remember the day exactly to the hour, July the 1st, 1990, 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, like I said, this guy that witnessed through me about when I kept asking him, Tim, why are you so happy, man? What's wrong with you? And I'm saying to myself, this is this guy's on drugs. All he ever said to me, Roman, was, I have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm like, dude, you're crazy. How do you know that? You don't know. You can't see this guy. I said, I see all these people around me, and I have no relationship with them. And, uh, and this is what I tell people that was interesting with me was, when my little divorce was final from my daughter, from our ex-wife. And she's dragging my daughter out of our ranch. And that was my whole life. The only thing that meant anything in my life. I went to my room and I got on my knees and I, I'm going to tell verbatim what I said. 11 o'clock in the morning, July 1st, 1990. God, first of all, I want to tell you something. I don't believe you're real. That's first. Because you know, you got to be real. And I believe I serve a big God. And I said, that's number one. I said, number two, if you are real, you're looking at me and say, man, Joe, you're so freaking bad. You stay down there, I don't want you up here. I said, number three, but if you are real, change my life. If you change my life, I'll die for you. And if you don't, I'll spend the rest of my life telling people you're a fraud. And people think that when we convert or when we have a, a religious experience, our life just gets better, right? Because a lot of people try to bargain with God and whoever you, whoever's God it is, for you and I, is, is, is Jesus Christ. But whoever, let it be Mohammed, Buddha, whatever. And you can't do that. My world went from bad, Roman, to horrifically bad in three months. Well, I'm gonna tell you, I went from being a multimillionaire since I was 20 to not having a dollar. This in this all this happened in one week. To not having a dollar to go home and find out that my father, my hero, my idol, had just been diagnosed with cancer, had a a year left to live. And my ex-wife took off for two and a half years with my daughter. And I go into the cell. When the judge looked at me and said, I reject any plea agreement you reach with the government. It's my intention to sentence you to a life sentence. You will die in a federal prison. I said, your honor, with all the respect, you can only give me what God wants to give me. And the truth of the matter is, if he doesn't change my life, I don't give a damn where I die. I have been dead for years, so this is my only chance. And and then I played guilty, I forfeited over $50 million, with no agreement or nothing. The only thing that I was banking on, or that we asked, my attorney asked, listen, sentence him under the law when he committed his crime. See, when I committed my crime, the most the government could give me is 15 years, right? That's the most. But the law changed at the end of 87, that 15 years, now was three life sentences well the people that i had dealt with that i walked away from kept going and when they got arrested technically i could be sentenced under that same law which would be three sentences versus 15. but since they never caught me with nothing since they never had a witness and i confess all they could all that we were hoping was that i get charged with the violation of the pro that 10 years i had left for my first sentence and uh and my world went dark but i remember walking into the cell mobile alabama and, uh, and I'm laying there on this bunk, steel bunk bed. And it have been 36 hours that I've been on the road from St. Louis all the way to Mobile, from prison to prison. And it just seemed like every time they moved me to a new prison, I missed a dinner or a lunch or a breakfast. And I finally got to Mobile after I left the court and, uh, and I hear this guy I say, Milky Way, Milky Way. And I look around and this guy said, man, they got Milky Way, we only get that like every two months. And he said, only a dollar. And Roman, I said to myself, my God, two hours earlier, I was worth $60 million and I don't have a freaking dollar to buy a Milky Way account. And I'm laying in my bed and this little pocket sheet out of a pocket Bible, Hebrews, falls on my chest and it says, rejoice at the confiscation of your goods because you got greater riches in heaven. And it was so crazy. And you know, and like I tell people, our faith and, and our evolution and how we change for the better. It's a process. And, and it's not an overnight process. I'm uh, Listen, it was 1990 since I gave my life to Christ. So You're talking about 30-some-odd years now. And uh, exactly 30 years. And I, it's changing every day. And, and we struggle. And we fall. But there is forgiveness, you know? And, and there's faith. And they're like, well, how come you have such strong faith? I said, because... I have seen things in my life that have happened, uh, answers to prayers. And, uh, and at the end of the day, I said, what's most important of all is, here's a guy that the news media used to say, I ran through my pain. And I said, falling in love with this imaginary character you all want to call, it, whatever it is, changed my life to the point that I never used to cry when I was tortured. Since the day I left Havana at the age of 10, I did not shed one more tear ever until I became a Christian again. And my kid said, now, nah, man, now you cry over everything. I said, yeah, because the thing about that was so critical in my transformation with Jesus was that his love broke my heart and, heart and gave me a new heart. And I said, look, people have problems with Christians, and rightfully so, because, you know, sadly enough, the worst propaganda we give to Christ or to any faith is those of us that call themselves or those that call themselves Christian and live anything but a Christian life right no love no evidence no nothing I said look no one has a problem with Jesus and no one has a problem with his love I said so that's my story if, if, if I like, I tell people when I when I do events I said look if the shoe fits wear it if it doesn't they just buy another pair of shoes and but the truth of the matter is that, you know, turn my life around blindly, man. I mean, think about it. There was no promises of nothing. I'm like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna be able to bury my children. And one day my children are gonna come and pick up my body from a prison. But my pain and my hope of being transformed was so deep and so enormous that this was my only chance. So I, I told a friend of my the other day, I said, look, man, if nothing else, if you're a gambler, just give it a shot, but don't play. You know, don't play and don't like, okay, I'm going to become a Christian today because the good things are going to happen to me. Yes, you know. Listen, it's, uh, it's a struggle. It's a war out there. I have no fear because, and I, I'm not, and I, I'm really quick for how I say this because as we're going through this virus, I'm not one that says that God brought this virus amongst us, right? Because that would be painful to say. But for me, for George Valdez, I just believe that nothing that happens in my life is either ordained by him or permitted by him. So, if he permits something in my life, what is it for? What do I have to learn? You know, where are we at as a world? You know, I thought one of the best things this virus would bring is that it would take this hatred that that we have shown in America, where suddenly, man, whether you like the president or not, man, families don't speak to each other anymore. You know, the our our children we're so far from wanting anything to do with religion, with with Christ, with with the church, with anything. And uh, like I told people, look, I've never met an atheist in a trench hole. It just doesn't exist. I said, but I have this tremendous peace because number one, I believe for me, for George death, if I die, I'm gonna be with Christ. And if I live, I'm gonna live with him. So what do I got to lose? i thought i was gonna die at 24 when i had no faith at 30 when i had no faith i never thought i'd make it past 30. i'm 64 man i'm, I'm like way past all no time so you know it's uh this is a time for us to to really think hard about our lives did we ever imagine the whole world was shut down and uh and to look at take the focus away from us like i tell people why don't you Play cards, you know? The first luxury we had in America after three years was not a car or a TV or a red player, it was a Monopoly board. And we played Monopoly when we we're poor, but you know what, bro? we were happy, man. We were together as a family. And all of a sudden, I, I have money you can ever imagine and nothing in my life meant anything. And I'm like, I adore my mother, tremendous respect for her, but I hate all women. You know, uh, I couldn't care less if someone dies or not. Uh, yeah, I got twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 every Friday out of my excess. But if that Friday meant that $30,000 was gonna keep me from buying fuel for my jet, well, the poor had to stay poor. Well, now if I got two pairs of shoes and someone needs it, give one. When I built my company, I dedicated my company to God, day one. And I said, I'm gonna give 10% of everything that we made. And we did, and we created a foundation that's done tremendous things to help kids get off drugs, so, you know, and when we had the foundation, I did a big seminar and people said, well, you know, it's hard to start a foundation. I said, well, how about, how about you say, okay, can you afford $500 to give away once a year? Yeah. And this was a good friend of mine who was African-American. I said, why don't you offer a $500 scholarship for both African-American kids at some university? I said, that will transform their life. And it's nothing. It just means don't bring Starbucks for a you know, hundred days, for three months. So there's so much that we can do in the world if we just take the focus away from us and if we focus on others and the needs of others and realize that, listen, we can make a difference. We just didn't come here to, I mean, what kind of a joke? I mean, we're such a perfect creation. What do we do? Come here to live, suffer, and die? You know, there's greater meaning to life. We have a greater purpose. There's a lot of hurting people out there. We can reach out to people and say, hey, I'm here. Uh, you know be the title of my first book coming clean you know share with people your pain your struggle share that with your kids so they realize that hey when they struggle they can come and share it with you when I decided to do this uh, journal called narco mindset journal uh, I'm almost done with it you know I looked at life and I looked at how, how do we change our mind how do we change our mindset so that instead of fear we live in power and you know instead of being greedy we're generous instead of being selfish we care about others you know how do we transform mind so that when whatever challenge comes in life you know and and that's i write every day i do my youtube channel and uh, there's gonna be a big big major streaming uh, series about my life coming this fall that's the story of my life
1: that's awesome and i think like going back to the whole religion thing i think a lot of people like you said either get saved and then are kind of shown a direction where it's kind of like the prosperity doctrine where like you you know you accept god and then everything is going to be like you said is is all okay and most times everything's going to collapse around you and you have to kind of figure it out but i think god doesn't give you anything that you can't handle and then you got to kind of get past that but then it's also kind of your background so I was born in Ukraine under the Soviet Union. So when I came here, I saw all that, you know, standing in bread lines with my mom for like five hours, hot water being shut off. So I think coming to the U.S. in terms of like the capitalistic economy and anyone can do technically anything if they have the drive to do so, I think different tough times prepare you a lot better, give you that kind of additional grid. And then last recession, 2008, I got into what I do now, what I've been doing, for 11 years and I took advantage in the opportunity of that economy. So I think it's important that way and focusing on that legacy, like you said, mindset has e- exponentially increased my business and my brand by just simply helping others and not expecting anything in return.
0: Yeah, and, and that's the whole thing about it. like got there, but you cannot give God. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. So we had a company did a uh, major catastrophe. And we're doing one in, in, in Louisiana. And uh, we have, we've been there three months. And our company was part of the cleanup of the Pentagon. So we, we became very, very large. And we're there three months. And we're about to leave. We're about to leave. We have done really well. And I'm sitting there paying checks to all our vendors. And I'm literally living inside a, a penitentiary at Angola, which is a, a tremendous story about if you want to see read about the bloodiest prison in the history of America, a one man, and I'd love for him to be on your podcast because you'll love him, how one man came in there and turned the prison where there was a stabbing every day, murder every day, and turned it for Christ and became the safest prison in America. Unbelievable. But I'm, I'm, I'm there in this motorhome, and I get this inkling. And it's like, write a check for $150,000. And uh, what happened, there was a church inside the prison, and the, the hurricane had destroyed the church, but the prison thought that it belonged to the church, so that they couldn't do nothing. About it. The church thought, well, it's inside, it belongs to the prison, are so not going to pay for it. So nobody was going to pay for nothing, and it was devastated. and it was a church built in the 1950s. And I'm like, how many people found hope? How many people found, you know, peace for their life in this little bitty church? So I went in and I gave it to Ward, and I said, look, I just feel like God's telling me to give this, and I did and uh, the year after that, we made millions, millions. And uh, before we ever counted out, we took 10% and we created that foundation, President Miles Foundation, and we've done things around the world, you know, like like you appreciate it. I'm telling a friend of mine today, because my son, of course, very, very good, great filmmaker. And he's like, well, dad, we have to, uh, you need to stay home and all that. And I, and I said, my friend, I said, you know, My son sees that because he's never been hungry. He's always had a good refrigerator. He lives in a gorgeous home. He lives in a golf course. He doesn't know what it is to be in a bed line. He doesn't know what it is about five o'clock in the morning to deliver newspapers so you can buy rice. Forget about anything else. Our meal at night was rice and beans. My father would been a millionaire making 80 cents an hour for JC Penney as a janitor. And he's got two boys, nine, ten and nine, helping so that we can buy rice and beans and maybe once a week buy uh, some meat, ground beef or whatever. We ate cat food, not thinking that it was cat food. We just thought it was spam or something, you know? And uh, at the end of the day, you realize that unfortunately, most people today in America have no clue about that and have no clue about how many people are hurting, you know? We don't have a middle class anymore. If you think 80% of America has $400,000 in savings, my God, it's like, what has happened to the, are we really the richest country in the world? Or people say, hey, look, like uh, communism, you know, if you own all the money, I said, well, what has happened in America now? Very few own all the money. A lot of people are hurting. And and this is the reset. People say, well, the world's going to said, no, 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 no. The world has changed. The world has drastically changed. And we adapt, right? Because you know how to adapt because you came from Ukraine, you had your life with your family and your friends and your neighbors and your relatives. and so You came to the United States and you wonder, like, is this better? You know, we're at a food line. We're going hungry. You know, you can see mom and dad desperate. They probably didn't speak the language. You know, my dad, I've got to have been a millionaire his life didn't speak English. Life was very, very difficult. The immigrant journey is a very difficult journey. I tell people, listen, I am pro-life, but I'm pro-all life. I'm pro that immigrant woman in the border. I'm pro that, that drug addict. We're not even talking to consideration the problem you're going to have in America with mental health that nobody wants to talk about. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about the fact that this year, because this virus, probably two to three times as many people will commit suicide. You know, listen, it doesn't mean that I'm an idiot. And if the government tell me, hey, stay six feet away, wash my hands, you know, cover your faith, I'll do that, right? Because I'm an obedient citizen, as we I believe that I'm supposed to be. But I don't go out there in fear, you know? And uh, and I'm not going to let the media, and I've been talking a lot about this, scare the hell out of me. To feed poor people, I'll listen to what they got to say. Don't tell me how many people are dying. Tell me how many people are recuperating. You know, I have a brain. Don't scare me. Don't scare me. We will get through this. You know, we will get through everything. And you're right. I believe without a doubt, God will not give us any more that we can handle. We call ourselves a Christian nation, but we need to ask ourselves, are we living up to that title? Or is it just a title? Prosperity of God's for perfect example. Yeah, people, yeah, I'm sure God wants to bless you, but it's His choice. What if He doesn't? What if He wants you to live in misery for me? I'm fine, right? Because all I care about is doing His will, you know? And it's not about that, we gamble with God. I tell people, the only time you gotta gamble with God is if you're a gambler, is give your life to him. If you lo- if he's not real, you lost nothing. If he is, you gain eternity. And that's what I tell, you know, I, I, I deal, we deal a lot with prison. One of our mission is we send books to prisoners all over the United States. Because that's another thing that's the worst. The war on drugs is the biggest joke in America. Is, is the worst scam uh, society. in the and the whole criminal reform, the criminal justice system is skewed. It's made to go after those that can't defend themselves because they don't care about rehabilitating people. It's all about bodies, right? It's all about big money. You know, pharma. Uh, we, we spend millions of dollars on the drug war to do what? To do what? Cocaine is 10% of the death in America. Why don't we spend half of that to go up to 65%, which is big pharma? You know, you're not gonna win the one drugs. Listen, you know, Pablo Escobar, I heard it over and over again. I remember when Pablo Nobody, you know, when he was a chauffeur for Manuel. You killed Pablo Escobar, nothing happened, another one worse come. You like El Chapo, another one worse come. You're not gonna stop it. Ever, ever. So if you're not gonna stop it, doesn't mean that we give up on law enforcement, right? I believe in law enforcement, I believe that if you commit a crime, you need to pay for your crime. So I believe in justice but it has to fit the crime. You you want to talk about, look at all the drug dealers in South America. I said, well, l- let me go back and tell you something that I know, because I lived it. So the banana companies in America would go to the Colombian banana growers and give them enough, Roman, for them to start. And three, four through the season, they're like, we don't need no more bananas. And they're like, what do we do with burn them? Because they didn't even have a road to take it to the big city, right? So let's say they were giving them $100 an acre. So here we come in, the devil, right? And we said, okay, I'm gonna give you $2,000 an acre. I'm gonna build your school. I'm gonna build your hospital. And we'll build your roads so that whatever bananas you grow, you can take them and sell them in the city. To them, people, who was God? You know? So you wanna stop, joint traffic in America? Quit exploiting your international company, quit exploiting those workers down there. You know, and same thing in the United States. Help this kid. Nobody wants to become a drug trafficker. Nobody wants to break the law. Uh, When people come out of prison and they say, oh, jailhouse conversion is a lie. No, it's not a lie. It's very real. It's not easy to become a Christian in prison. You're chastised. But what happens? I come out of prison, I've given my life to God, and nobody in the church wants to receive me, right? Nobody wants to hire me. Nobody wants anything to do with me. What am I gonna do? I gotta eat. Right, I got a big label in the back says convicted felon, don't hire me. So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do what I know how to do to survive. It's called survival. So there's a lot that we can do to change this. Uh, we can quit spending trillions of dollars fighting this insensible wars and spend that helping our youth to find options to the life. Dealing with mental health, it is real. It is not uh, a label, it is not a concept, it is real. There's people dying of mental health here in America uh people getting arrested for drugs they're not criminals allow them they're addicts an addict is not a criminal he's just a person suffering from mental health so there's just so much that we can do it and uh, and at the end of the day i just pray i get up in the morning i pray i go to bed at night, i pray and i just pray that all said and done i've done the best that i whatever he has given me and that's for me i don't tell people this i'm not telling you Give your life to Christ, everything's going to be fine for you. All your problems are going to go away. Your wife is coming back. Your kids are getting off drugs. No, I can't say that. I have no clue what the heck is going to happen with you. All I can tell you is what happened with me, right? And all you can say is what has happened to you. And if it's attractive, you know, uh, if we are, I, I tell, I tell people, people say, well, well, how can you believe in God? I said, well, look, so here's the deal. I knew Chuck Colson, right? You know, I know Chuck Colson from Watergate. He was Nixon's lawyer. And he became a Christian, wrote a book called Born Again. But he said the best thing I ever heard him say is this. He said, I know the restaurant was true because the 12 most powerful men in the world were not able to keep alive for three weeks in Watergate. And 12 nobodies in the Middle East were thrown to lions, were eaten, were, were beaten. Their children set on fire because they believed in the restaurant they tried. So he says, I know that's when it's true. And that's, and that's the biggest thing for me, you know? And uh, and I failed also, and I, to be real, is like, listen, it's not all roses, man. I, I gotta stay on my knees every day because I'm not perfect. I'm never gonna be perfect, but I try every day to be a little better, to be a, better, a little better husband, a little better father, a little better friend, a little better Christian, you know? And at the other day, I just pray that when people see me, say, hey, there's something different about him, you know? But if people, like I tell people, if you're in the office and everyone's joking and telling nasty jokes and, and, and cursing and all that, and they don't care about saying it in front of you, then maybe you need to find out what's going on with us. We're supposed to be live up for a different standard, you know? Not judging anybody, loving people, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. And obviously, it's, a, it's an ever-changing journey. And just like you said... Just because you you know become a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to fall or do the wrong things, but kind of picking yourself up from that as well. So what's one thing you can leave with the audience in terms of advice?
0: You know, the main thing that I, as far as advice that I can give the audience is when you look at something in life, ask yourself through what lenses you're looking at it. And your lenses, you gonna look at things through the lenses of your life experiences, but just realize that. We get knocked down many, many times in life, and that will never define you. You have hope in life. You have redemption in life. There is a better way, uh, and that better way doesn't necessarily mean more money. Because I found joy in a prison cell, thinking I was going to lie there for the rest of my life. So don't don't let your failures or what you consider your failure even call them failures. Change your mindset. You know. Give importance to what's really, really important in life. Your children, they don't need more things. They need you. You know, Uh, spend time with your family. That's the most important thing. Like I tell uh, people, don't come to my funeral to give me. I'm not there. You want to give me love? Give it to me while I'm alive. You know, call your friends. Let's not be so distant uh, in the world that we're living in. And for those that are seeking meaning to their life or, 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 or believe in God or their faith is weak, what I can tell them is this. If God could change the heart of George Valdez, he can change any human being's heart. Because I was the most heartening human being in the world. I, I was not a person that did not believe in God. I was an adamant, advocate, atheist. I, I not only did not believe in God, I was against anybody and everybody that believed in God. And the beauty about the greatest thing I can say about that is that when God changed me, He changed, He did not wait for me to change, He changed me at my worst. Mm-hmm. God loved me when I was a sinner. And and to a lot of people it might not mean nothing, woman, but to me, the day that verse, my master was in the Gospel of John. And the day that, birth, and I read it a hundred times and the day that verse became real to me I loved you when you were a sinner and I sat there and I thought about all the horrific things I had done in my life all the death I had seen and I'm like you could love me then? you know so look at your brothers and look at people don't let politics divide us love people love changes lives love changes hearts and if you don't have a relationship with God or you don't or, or or you feel like your life has no meaning, give it a shot. You'll take your meeting right where you're at. And at the end of the day, when all, all this is gonna, all this will pass. This virus will pass. There will be other challenges that will also pass. And more important is this. My PhD was in the apocalypse of St. John. People say, when, when do you think Jesus is coming back? I said, I don't give a damn. And they're like, oh, you're a Christian? I said, well, it's simple for me. Been coming back forever, still not here. What's important for me is that in my lifetime, I'm going to see him. So I'm not worried if he's going to come 120 years from now. All I'm worried about is how am I going to be that day when I come and see him? Our days here are a gift. We can be here today. If the virus shown you anything to anybody, it's, our life is just but a fleeting moment. There's more to life. There's got to be more to our creation, Roman, than living 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years in a fallen and broken world. There is more. And I believe that That when I die, whenever that day comes, I fear not. And it will be glorious for me. So my mission in life, impact the world and work my butt off to bring my to get my children to come to heaven with me. And that's what I live for.
1: That's awesome and a really powerful story and journey. And I really appreciate your stopping by today. Can you let the audience know how they can find you or anything else you have going on?
0: Yes. If uh, One of the ways is if you go to my webpage at www.jorgevaldez.com and you join our community, you get a free copy of my latest book. If you go to Narco Mindset Journal, follow me on my YouTube. I don't make money off of this. All I do is every penny that we get, every book that we sell to son I got 12 books published. Every penny goes to books to prisoners, to give them hope, to give them redemption, to give them uh, a feeling that people care about them. Uh, especially in their times of loneliness. But follow us because I'm writing a lot of stuff. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of things in the, uh, like I said, in the big major streaming services about my life soon. I've waited many, many years because I, I wanted the story to be told right. And I, I recently joined with a studio called Rack, Rack On Tour. They did the cocaine cowboys. Two great guys. And we got some amazing projects, amazing works. And uh, listen, before Pablo Escobar was there, I was there before he ever made a dollar. I was making millions. So that we're telling stories that never have been told before. And at the end of the day, we're doing it all with one purpose and one meaning. Is, and, and that's what I tell. Every drug story that you see, Roman, a poor kid leaves school, does horrific crimes, and ends up in jail with that. Well, I did this. I wasn't poor kid. I was a poor kid. I didn't leave school. I had a college degree, but I did get a life of crime. I did go to prison, but God redeemed me. And I found redemption and I re rein- and He reinvented me. I have a PhD now. I'm respected. I'm a i am respected i am speak all over the world. And uh and my whole mission is to give people uh, a message of hope and redemption that there is hope for us. There is tremendous hope. Take your eyes off this virus and say, "What? Are, what is? If you don't believe this, God, what is nature <laughs> I'm trying to teach you? Because it's trying to tell things, right?" And uh, so, you follow me. There's just a lot of stuff publishing on a daily basis. We're making uh, videos constantly, and they're all to give people positive messages of hope and redemption. And at the same time, a lot of them are entertaining. We're telling stories that have never, ever been told before. So, Jorge Valdez with an S, phd.com, and uh, the journal is narcomindsetjournal.com.
1: Awesome. Thanks again for stopping by. My pleasure, my brother. I'd love to send you a copy of my book. That would be awesome. It'd been a pleasure being with
0: you.